0: Episode sixteen: The Rebel of Babastro. Hello again. Last time we took a look at a new player on the scene, young King Alfonso III of Asturias. While the emir of Al-Andalus, Muhammad I, was kept busy stamping out rebellions inside his territory and knocking heads with the Banu Qasi in the Basque region, King Alfonso III busied himself embarking on an ambitious program of expansion. Around ten years into what would become a lengthy reign, King Alfonso's rule had seen the Kingdom of Asturias expand from being a small slither of territory in the centre of the northern coast of the Iberian Peninsula to an extensive kingdom – stretching across Galicia all the way to Porto on the western coast of the peninsula and expanding southwards through the former buffer zone into the northern reaches of Al-Andalus. While many of the towns taken by Alfonso during the first decade of his reign were small and relatively unimportant, some proved to be the opposite – one of his more consequential early conquests was the ancient Roman town of Leon. Now, the town of Leon lies almost directly south of the capital city of Asturias, Oviedo. Leon is around ninety kilometers or fifty five miles from Oviedo, and today the two towns are a leisurely one and a half hours drive away. When King Alfonso III commenced his reign, Leon was located in the unpopulated buffer zone which separated Asturias from Al Andalus. But despite the fact that it contained no people, Leon was still a very impressive place. It had begun its life as a camping site for the Roman Legion serving under Caesar Augustus during the final stages of the Roman conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, way back in the 3rd century BCE. The site was eventually fortified and used as a permanent Roman military camp, earning the name Castra Legionis, or Camp of the Legion the Romans ended up expanding the site until it was an impressively sized town. In the 6th century of the Common Era, the town was taken by the Visigoths, who refortified and modernised it. At this stage of its history, the name of the town, Castrolegionis, had morphed into its current, much shorter name, Leon. The town of Leon fell to the Muslim invaders following the Battle of 711, but was later abandoned following the Berber revolts. When young King Alfonso III was looking to expand his kingdom southwards, Leon was an obvious target. King Alfonso didn't need to conquer the abandoned city, though, he just needed to move in and claim it, which is exactly what he did. The impressive Roman walls which still surrounded the city of Leon would make it an easy place to defend, and, spoiler alert, the city of Leon will become a hugely important place in later centuries, forming the seat of the Kingdom of Leon. In the same way that he annexed the city of Leon, King Alfonso strode around the top quarter of the Iberian Peninsula, extending his territory, conquering, claiming towns, and generally making himself at home. Likely concerned about the rising power of the Banu Qasi in the Basque region, King Alfonso went on a castle-building exercise in the eastern section of his newly conquered territory. In fact, he will end up constructing so many castles in this region that it will earn the nickname the Land of the Castles, which will later develop into the name Castile At the same time as he was embarking on his ambitious campaign of expansion, King Alfonso was engaging in diplomatic relations with the King of Pamplona and the Banu Qasi while supporting promising-looking rebellions sparking off inside Al-Andalus and also opening the door to any interested Christians inside Al-Andalus who could be persuaded to relocate to the new territory which King Alfonso had conquered. By the year 878 the emir Muhammad I had decided that the behaviour of King Alfonso III had become intolerable. The final straw for the emir was the Asturian king's support for the rebellion of al which we discussed back in episode 14. Muhammad I mustered a large army and ordered it to march northwards to teach the king of Asturias a lesson. Now, unfortunately, not an awful lot is known about the military confrontation which followed, but what is certain is that Asturias emerged victorious, while the Muslim armies were forced to retreat back to Al-Andalus. Even more humiliating for the Emir was the fact that Following the defeat of the Muslim forces, the emir found himself in the position of having to request a truce from King Alfonso III. Worried that the king of Asturias may follow up his successes by invading Al-Andalus, and stretched thin by the activities of the Banu Qasi and the Muslim rebellions, Muhammad I became the first emir of Al-Andalus to sue for peace with a northern Christian kingdom. In the end, though, it was extremely fortunate for Muhammad that he had negotiated this peace treaty as one of the most serious threats to his reign is about to take place in the form of an uprising by a man called Umar ibn Hafsan. Now, the backstory of Ibn Hafsan is a little murky and difficult to pin down, but it seems that he was the descendant of a Visigothic count who had converted to Islam, so he was of Mawalad origin. He had set himself up in the hills southwest of present-day Granada and ran a small holding in a sort of a feudal-type manner. This area, despite being way down in the south of the peninsula, was still predominantly Christian and also had a sizable Jewish population. The Muslims who lived there were largely Mawalads, who also engaged in some Christian practices and celebrated Christian holidays. Now, Ibn Hafsan was a pretty typical, ambitious landholder. He used peasant labour to work his land, then used the profits to increase his power and wealth, largely by hiring strong men to protect his property and to acquire more land and wealth. However, it was while using violence to expand his acquisitions that Ibn Hafsan had his first brush with misfortune. He murdered a rival family member and was forced to flee to northern Africa until things settled down enough for him to safely return. When Ibn Hafsan eventually did return, he had a plan. He decided to base himself at a place called Babastro, a hilltop fortress inland from the southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula. The fortress was ancient and well-constructed having been built in Roman times. Ibn Hafsan set himself up in the fortress and declared that Babastro was now the capital of a new independent region, free from rule by Cordoba. Ibn Hafsan's message was a tempting one for local Christians and for non-Arab Muslims. Deciding that the tax burden placed on local residents from Cordoba was excessive and unfair, Ibn Hafsan urged local residents to turn their backs on Cordoba and instead join his merry band of guerrilla fighters. Now, later in his lifetime, Ibn Hafsan will be epically successful, and he will control a gobsmackingly large region from his ancient hilltop fortress. It seems that Muhammad I may have realized the potential threat posed by Ibn Hafsan as he sent a sizable force southwards out of Cordoba to bring Ibn Hafsan to heel. Ibn Hafsan was brought to heel by this force in the year 883 and, following his defeat, was required to move out of his fortress and relocate to Cordoba along with his family, so that the emir could keep a close eye on him. For a while, Ibn Hafsan did exactly what he was told – even participating in military campaigns against the Banu Qasi, King Alfonso III and Muslim rebels on behalf of the Emir. However, he clashed repeatedly with one of his commanders, a man called Hashim ibn Abdulaziz, who we encountered back in episode 14. Ibn Hafsan eventually deserted his post gathered his family from Cordoba, and moved back to his fortress at Babastro. Now, interestingly, the commander Hashim ibn Abdulaziz was one of the reasons behind Ibn Hafsan's rise to power in the first place. Hashim was Muhammad I's favourite general, and was well known for his arrogance and disdainful attitude against anyone who had the misfortune not to be an Arab Muslim. As we stated back in episode 14, Hashim had been captured during the emir's campaign against Asturias, and King Alfonso kept him in Oviedo, demanding a ransom from the emir for his release. Now, Hashim ibn Abd aziz was the sort of man who was only really popular amongst the ruling Arab Muslims, but Muhammad I decided that every resident of al-Andalus, non-Arabs included, needed to cough up some sums in the guise of a new tax to pay for his favourite general's ransom. Forced to pay money for the benefit of a man whom they despised and who despised them back was a big factor in many Mawalads and Christians deciding to support Ibn Hafsan's rebellion, and it looks like Hashim ibn Abdulaziz was also single-handedly responsible for Ibn Hafsan's decision to return to his rebellious ways. However, despite the fact that Ibn Hafsan is back in his hilltop fortress, the matter is no longer of concern to the Emir Muhammad I. In fact, nothing is of concern any longer to the Emir, as he died in the year 886. Now, interestingly, Muhammad's successor was his favourite son, a man called Al Mundir. In addition to being one of the emir's many sons, Al-Mundir was a talented and experienced military commander, and in fact it was Al-Mundir and his forces who were originally sent from Cordoba to defeat Ibn Hafsan. So I guess it won't surprise anyone to learn that. One of al-Mundir's first actions as the new emir of al-Andalus was to attempt to defeat ibn Hafsan once and for all. He did this by using a sort of carrot and stick approach. Letting Ibn Hafsan know that he would be willing to use the entire military might of Cordoba to wipe him off the face of the planet if need be, al-Mundir let the rebel leader know that he could remain where he was in his hilltop fortress so long as he submitted to Cordoba. In fact, Almundir generously offered Ibn Hafsan the governorship of the region around his fortress, so long as he governed on behalf of Cordoba and not against it. Tempted by this offer, Ibn Hafsan agreed and swore an oath of allegiance to Almundir. However, this arrangement didn't last very long. Al Mundir ended up being an extremely busy man, who also pushed his generals pretty hard. This wasn't appreciated by Ibn Hafsan's old foe, Hashim ibn Abdulaziz, who, having been Al Mundir's father's favourite military commander, may not have appreciated having to take orders from his son. Al-Mundir made a few attempts to bring his father's old general to heel, but then gave up, ordering Hashim to be arrested and executed. This act caused some consternation amongst the military forces of Al-Andalus, and Ibn Hafsan saw an opportunity to take advantage of it. Despite having recently sworn an oath of loyalty to the new emir, Ibn Hafsan led a force out from his hilltop fortress and attacked some territory south of Cordoba, with the assistance of some Berber fighters with whom he had formed an alliance. A furious Al decided that it was time to teach Ibn Hafsan a lesson, so he personally led a sizeable military force out from Cordoba towards Ibn Hafsan's stronghold. Once at Babastro, the emir's forces surrounded the hilltop fortress and settled in for a lengthy siege. However, six weeks later, while camped at the siege of Babastro, Al-Mundir died unexpectedly. Now, historians over the centuries have debated whether Al-Mundir's death was from natural causes or whether he was poisoned, either on the orders of Ibn Hafsan or someone else. In his book Kingdoms of Faith, Brian Catlos points his finger at Al Mundir's brother Abdullah. According to Brian Catlos, Despite being a very pious man, Abdullah was also extremely ambitious. And in his later years, violent intrigue and the convenient deaths of family members was something which kept happening inside Abdullah's inner circle, so it could very well be that Abdullah had arranged for the untimely exit of his brother the Emir. It doesn't help his defence that, having been advised of the Emir's death, Abdullah managed to keep the event a secret for three days, which was just enough time for him to quickly make his way to Cordoba and have himself installed as the new Emir. Of course, for Ibn Hafsan, this was a turn of events which he couldn't help but take advantage of. In a short period of time, al Andalus had lost its two top generals, the emir himself and Hashim ibn Abdulaziz. While all eyes now turned away from Babastro towards Cordoba, ibn Hafsan declared himself to be the independent ruler of a vast territory to the south of Córdoba, stretching all the way along the southern coast of the peninsula from Gibraltar to Murcia. And it wasn't an idle claim... Having already garnered support from Berber strongmen and other non-Arab Muslims living in the region, Ibn Hafsan now went all out to secure the support of Christians in his territory, people who comprised the majority of the population. He built churches, he participated in Christian celebrations, and made vague promises that some of his children would convert to Christianity. He even went so far as to establish a bishopric at Babastro. Once he was certain that he had enough support to hold his territory, he sent envoys to King Alfonso III of Asturias the Banu Qasi in the Basque region, and even to his co-rebel Algiliqui, letting them know that there was a new kid on the block, and that if they ever needed assistance against their common enemy in Cordoba, well, they could rely on him for support. Join me next time as we see how the new Emir Abdallah, fares against the strengthening forces of enemies both inside Al-Andalus and in the north of the peninsula. Until next time, bye for now. This podcast is powered by Patreon. If you can spare one dollar per month and would like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com and search for History of the Crusades, or go to our website crusadespod.com and click on the Patreon link. Your one dollar contribution will mean you get access to an extra episode every fortnight on topics related to the Crusades. And it means that you are powering the History of the Crusades podcast. Thank you to all who have signed up so far. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus.